good, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 22. Again, that is Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with, sin- with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of, of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For if he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, so, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would open it up to us, that you, Holy Spirit, would come and speak to us. We pray that we would hear a word from God and not a word from man. We say these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever witnessed a big shake-up? Maybe it was at church or work or on the political scene, whatever it was. Maybe you've witnessed something where it takes everyone by surprise and things change drastically, even if you should have seen it from a mile away. People try to wrap their heads around it. They try to fit the new status quo into their old system. But ultimately, there are two types of people when a a shake-up happens. People that accept it, and people that cling to the old way of doing things. Well, this morning, we will see that when Christ comes onto the scene, He shakes up the old system, the old status quo, and He does so by giving a sovereign call, by demonstrating true righteousness, and by fulfilling the old. Look with me, and we'll see our first point, that Jesus gives a sovereign call. We see this in verses 13 and 14. Jesus has just finished preaching at the house of Peter, He's just healed the paralytic man, and he leaves and he begins to walk by the Sea of Galilee. If you remember, Jesus had returned from a preaching tour, and he was at home, and the people came to him, and he followed them. So he goes out, and the cycle continues. He's walking along the sea, and the same crowd that saw him heal the paralytic are following him again. And Jesus was not trying to escape the crowds. He was not trying to get away from them. But instead, he goes out to the sea where more people can take where, where more people 
can be in front of him, where he can have a bigger crowd. So as Jesus is going along the the seashore, he is teaching. We see that all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them, and he passed by, and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. We learn a lot about Levi from Mark's gospel, as well as from Matthew and Luke. In the gospel of Mark, we learn that Levi is a tax collector, and that he has his own tax booth. We learn from Matthew that Levi's other name is Matthew. This man, is, this man that Jesus is encountering is going to go on to be one of the twelve apostles. He's going to write the first gospel, and he's going to write the first book of the New Testament. He's going, he is the author of the gospel of Matthew. To understand the character of Matthew before he came to Christ, we need to understand what a tax collector does and what they were like. Due to the Roman occupation of Israel... They had to pay taxes, and they had, they had to pay taxes to the Roman government. And they resented this very much. The tax collectors were often given a quota that they were supposed to meet. But once they met that quota, any dollar, any cent that they made after that was theirs. So often what they would do was look for any way to take money from the people. They would charge people, uh, they would charge people far more than what was required of them. They would loan money at extreme interest rates. And they would be considered traitors to the Jewish people. They worked for the Romans, the people that, were, that had invaded and that had occupied Israel. They would have not been allowed in the synagogues. They would have not been allowed to testify in court. They were considered one of the worst of all sinners by the Jewish people. They were unclean and they could not worship in the temple. Matthew would have been a well-off tax collector. We know that because he has a tax booth that's by the Sea of Galilee. Anyone that was traveling around the sea, all of the fishermen, they would have to pay taxes to Matthew. Matthew was probably well known in Capernaum, and, he was, and everyone probably hated his guts because he was the last person that the Jews would ever thought would follow Christ. He was a tax collector. He was a traitor. He was a robber and a thief. He wasn't the kind of person that you would want to be seen in public with, and he was not the kind of person that you would bring up in polite conversation. He was not patiently waiting for the Messiah to come and bring him salvation. He was patiently waiting on how he could cheat the next person that walked up to his booth. Then one day, he meets Jesus. One day, Jesus is walking by the sea, and he sees Levi. Look at verse 14. Jesus sees Levi sitting at the tax booth and he says to him, follow me. We need to understand that Jesus is not giving Matthew a suggestion. He's not asking him a question. He's giving him a command. He says, follow me. And Matthew follows him. He's calling Matthew to the official office of discipleship. That would have meant that Matthew was now going to spend the rest of his life following Jesus around, listening to Jesus' teachings, and writing them down as best that he could. He wanted to obey Christ. That was a common practice in the day. Many rabbis would go and they would have followers. They would walk along the roads and they would teach and people would write down what they said. But Jesus was not some other teacher that just had a lot to say, a lot of wise things that hopefully people will remember. Jesus is the sovereign Lord of all the universe, clothed in human flesh, come to reveal the Father and sacrifice himself for our sins. That is the man that looked at Matthew and said, follow me. See, the calling of Matthew to be a disciple is a pattern for us. 
We are told in many places in Scripture that we are born in our sins. We are dead in our sins. And that we are alienated from God. In fact, we are His enemies by birth. But God is the one who's come to call us. He is the one that calls us out of darkness, out of our sinful existence, into His glorious light. J.C. Ryle speaks of it this way, speaks of the call of Matthew, and he says, "When When the Lord Jesus calls a sinner to be a servant, He acts as a sovereign, but He acts with infinite mercy. He often chooses those who are far off, the furthest off, those who seem most unlikely to do His will into His kingdom. This is the habit of Christ, to call those who are far off, those who you would not expect to be followers of Jesus, to come and follow after Him. Beloved, the Lord calls us with a sovereign command. He is a sovereign king, and He looks at Matthew and says, follow me. And He jumps up and follows Jesus. He gives the same command to us today. When a sovereign gives a command to his subjects, they don't sit around and talk about whether they should do it. They get up and they do it. When a king says, do this, they say, yes, sir. And they go and they do it. Jesus reaches out with his word and the spirit to change our hearts and make us people that love him. This is the response of Matthew. In Luke 5.28, we are told that Matthew left everything to follow after Jesus. He left the riches that he had illegally obtained the material goods that he had bought, the wicked lifestyle and every possession, and he went and he followed Jesus. That can only happen when God works in our hearts. That can only happen when he changes us. No one goes from a liar, a cheat, and a thief in five seconds to a follower of Christ without the power of God working in their hearts. And that is what we see. And with sacrificial obedience, he follows his commands. Not to impress him, but because he now loves Christ. As Americans, we might not think that we have a lot of uh, understanding about a sovereign, but we actually have a lot of experience with sovereigns, each and every one of us. Because each and every one of us has parents. And parents are our sovereigns. They rule over the front and the backyard with a gracious but sometimes a firm hand. And they tell us what to do. When our parents tell us to take out the trash... Take out the, or to clean up our rooms, things like that. Usually, I mean, sometimes we do say, well, I don't know if I should do that. But we have to face the consequences. It's the same with God. God is a sovereign God. When He tells us to do things, when He commands us to follow Him, we can either obey His, well, obey His call to follow Him, or we can disobey and suffer the consequences. See, this is a command that changes the heart. When Christ says, follow me, it changes our hearts. And it makes us a heart that loves God. This morning, each one of us is being called by the Lord. Whether for the first time or the hundredth time, do not push away the call of God. Do not set it aside as indigestion, but remember and listen to God's command to follow Him. Listen to His voice. It is the voice that will guide you to green pastures and will guide you to love Him and live with Him forever. If you are already a believer this morning, then the calling has been given to you already and you have answered it. This morning, remember your calling. Remember that we are called to obey Christ. Don't neglect the teachings of the One that has brought us to Him by His Holy Spirit. But call on the Holy Spirit and ask Him to aid us in following Christ with our whole heart.
So we see that Jesus gives a sovereign call. And secondly, that Jesus demonstrates true righteousness. Look at verses 15 through 17. After Jesus calls Levi, we're told that he goes to his house and he has, and he has dinner with him. We see in Luke 5, 29, that, Mark shows, that uh, uh, Levi has a great feast for him. We're told in Mark 2, 15, what kind of people come to the feast and eat with Jesus? It's tax collectors and sinners. This should come as no surprise to us. Matthew's a tax collector. All he would have hung out with were tax collectors. All he would have hung out with were other sinners. It makes sense. He's a brand new convict, uh, convert, and he, needs to, and he wants to bring his friends to Jesus. These are the outcasts of societies. When it says sinners, it's not necessarily meaning people that were running around doing terrible things. But they were the outcasts of society. People that you wouldn't be caught dead around, and you especially wouldn't have eaten a meal with them. You see, just as today, but in a greater degree, when you ate a meal with someone in first century Israel, it had certain connotations. It meant that you were friends with them. It meant that you accepted them. Especially the kind of meal that Jesus was eating with them. Look at verse 15. If you're using a pew Bible, it says, Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house. That's a good translation, but it misses part of the point. The uh, more literal translation says that Jesus was reclining at the table with Levi and his friends. Whenever there was a feast at someone's house, the Jews would come and they would either lay on their backs and eat, or they would lay on their stomachs with their arms up, and they would pick, pick the food off of the table. It would be a long table, and they would eat together. It was a very close, and it was an intimate gathering. This is what the disciples did on the night of the Last Supper. That's why it's very easy for us to understand that John laid on Jesus' chest and asked him a question because they were close together. And Mark tells us that this is the kind of meal that Jesus is having. He didn't come to eat and then run and go off to the next thing, but it was a meal with plenty of time for conversation, for talking, and for, rela- and for relaxation. Jesus was laying there, eating with Matthew's friends and having conversation. And, but there were some people that didn't like what Jesus were doing. There were some people that looked at what he did and they didn't like that the tax collectors and the sinners that were eating with him, that wanted, they wanted to follow him. They didn't like that. They didn't like that Jesus would spend time with these people. And these are the scribes of the Pharisees. Look at verse 16. It's the same group that was mad at Jesus when he healed the leper. It's the same group that was mad at Jesus whenever he healed the paralytic man. It's the scribes of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a religious group in the first century that prided themselves on holiness, and so they separated themselves from all of other society so that they could be holy. They added a multitude of regulations on top of the law of God. They added, they talked about who you could eat with, where you could eat, how many steps you could take on the Sabbath, and all other sorts of regulations. They added on top of God's law so that they could better keep it. They thought that they could work their way to God. We see that in all of Jesus' interactions with them. So the scribes among them would have been those who taught the law of God to them. They were the theologians, the experts of the scripture. They see Jesus eating with the dregs of society and they are furious. They think, how could he eat with those people? How could he eat with those traitors, those robbers, and those thieves? How could he eat with those people that we would never 
ever be with. No self-respecting rabbi would ever hang out with them. So they ask Jesus, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? It's not a a question born out of curiosity. It's a question born out of malice and accusation. They're not concerned with the state of the souls of the people that Jesus is eating with. They could care less whether they follow God. All they cared about was why is Jesus not acting the way that we act? And sadly, sometimes we can be this way too. We can look at others and we can, we can think, I can't believe they would wear that. I can't believe they'd put that on Facebook. I can't believe they would be with them. Sometimes we slip into this thinking. And it is good to hear the words of Jesus. It is good to hear what he tells the scribes of the Pharisees. Look at verse 17. He hears the accusation and he says that those who are sick, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. When do you go to the doctor's office? I don't go when I'm well. I don't like to go. I don't want to get sick by going to the doctor's office when I'm well. But when I'm sick, I run to the doctor's office because I want to get better. I need medicine. That's what Jesus is saying. He's telling the scribes that, they, that he is not there to save people that think they are righteous. He's not there to save people that think that they are well. He makes this clearer in the next sentence. He says, He came to call not the righteous, but the sinners. And Luke adds to repentance. You see, in two sentences, Jesus looks at the scribes and he shows their true colors and he shows their need of him. Again, Bishop Ryle states it this way. To feel, to feel our sins and know our sickness is the beginning of real Christianity. We cannot come to Christ if we think that we are well. If you think that you are righteous and that there is no sin in you, then you have no part in Jesus Christ. We have to understand that we are sinners in need of salvation. He says, He did not come to call those who, had no, who thought they had no need of Him, but those who knew by the grace of God that they were sinners in need of grace. The scribes and the Pharisees were self-righteous. They believed that they were holy. They believed that they had no need for salvation. The tax collectors and the sinners reclining next to Jesus, they knew that they were in desperate need of grace. They knew what everyone thought of them. They knew that they had robbed. They knew that they had cheated. And they knew that they needed someone to save them. It's not enough to be just in the presence of unbelievers, though. We have to actually proclaim the truth of Christ to them. Listen to what Christ says. Look at the last thing he says. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He says this while he lays next to tax collectors and sinners. He calls them sinners to their face. And he says that they need to repent. Jesus didn't just hang out with them. He gave them the gospel. And that's what we're called to do. Imagine you were a pharmacist. And you were walking around and you had a cure for a deadly disease in your pocket. You go to someone's house and they're all infected with the disease. You talk to them. You eat dinner with them, maybe. You talk to them in the long hours of the night. They tell you about how the disease, how it's terrible, how it's ravaging them. And then you get up and you say, well, i got to go home. I'll see you later. How selfish would we be? Beloved, we are the pharmacists walking around with the cure for sin in our pocket. When we go and we are with our friends and our family who have a desperate need for Christ, we must tell them about our Savior. 
As you go about your daily lives, we rub elbows with people who have no idea who Christ is. No idea that they are suffering from the deadly effects of sin. We see people, we have friends and we have family that live in darkness, shackled by the weight of their sins. And we carry the light around with us. We should give it out. We should give out the gospel. I'm not saying that you need to go and write a sermon every day for the people that you see on on your 24-7 route. But I am saying, when you have the opportunity to speak about Christ, seize it. When we have the opportunity to tell people about what we're learning in the scripture, we should take it. Because they need it. Just as desperately as we need it, they need it. So lastly, we see that Jesus gives a sovereign call. He demonstrates true righteousness. And finally, Jesus fulfills the old. Look at verses 18 through 22. The Pharisees and their disciples, they're not really satisfied with the answer that Jesus gives. In fact, it was most likely a very stinging answer in their ears. These are people who thought that they knew the Bible, who thought that they knew the Scriptures, and Jesus looks at them and says, you have no idea what God, what God intends to do. So, while he's still eating with the people, other folks come up and they ask him, why do the disciples of John the Baptist, and why do the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't? You see, fasting was a very important part of the religious life of the Jews. There was only one day in the entire year that they were required to fast. They were required to fast all day, and it was on the Day of Atonement. They were required to fast because they were mourning for their sins. But throughout the Old Testament, even though it's not required, we see people fasting all the time. We see people fasting when tragedy strikes. We see people fasting whenever they're sad. We see people fasting to mourn their sins. And so these people come and they say, why are John and his disciples fasting and the, and the Pharisees are fasting, but your disciples aren't. The Pharisees, they fasted twice a week. And they fasted on Thursdays, on Tuesdays and Thursdays to prove their holiness to God. John and his disciples fasted in preparation for the coming of Jesus. They fasted hoping that Jesus would come. So it seemed if you wanted to be taken seriously as a religious leader, you and your group better be fasting. And you better be doing it where everybody can see it. So Jesus answers this question in the same way he answers a lot of questions in his ministry. He gives a couple of parables. The first parable is about a wedding feast. Look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus asks if the guests at a wedding feast fast when the bridegroom is with them. A typical Jewish wedding lasted seven days. They would start at the beginning when the groom and all of his friends showed up and they would, they would celebrate until the last day. I'm getting married in December, and don't worry, it won't last seven days, just one. But they would celebrate, and when it was over, all the attendants would leave. So there would be a lot of food, a lot of singing, and a lot of fun for everyone. It was a big celebration. Now, if you had fasted at a wedding in that day, you would have been extremely insulting to those people. I mean, they bring you food, they bring you all this stuff, and you say, I can't, I'm fasting. That would be very insulting. And so Jesus says something that everyone would have known. He is saying that right now is the time for celebration. He says he is the husband that has come to take his bride, and it's time to celebrate. He is the husband that has come to bring salvation to his people. He's referencing a lot of Old Testament imagery that shows God as the husband of Israel. He's saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm God that has come to save his bride. 
And it's not time to fast. It's time to celebrate that the Messiah is here. See, He is the covenant God of Israel, here to be Israel's husband. Jesus then points to a time when the bridegroom is gone. Look with me at verse 20. It says, The day will come, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. See, like I said, this would be foreign to a Jewish to Jewish thought. At the, on the seventh day of the wedding, all of the guests they would leave, and the bride and the groom would be left to, to go about their daily life. They would, be go, they would be starting their new life. But Jesus says, the bridegroom is going to be taken away. He's, refer, he's referencing his death on the cross. He's saying, one day, very soon, I'm going to die. And then my disciples will fast. Then my disciples will be, they will be sad because I'm gone. See, Jesus says it is through this sadness and it is through this death that he is going to fulfill the old structures of Israel. And here's how he says this. He goes on and he gives the second illustration. Or he gives two illustrations from daily life. He says, if there's a garment that's ripped, you don't put a new patch on it. Because if you do, when you wash it and you dry it, it'll tear away from the old and it'll make the the tear worse than it was before. And then he says... You don't put old wine into you don't put new wine into old wineskins. So in that day, what they would do is after they crushed the grapes, after they had all the juice, they would take an old they would take a goat's hide and they would put the wine in there and they would let it ferment. And as it ferments, the hide would go like this and it would stretch and it would reach its critical point. And then when that was when that had happened, you took the wine out and you knew it was ready. So Jesus says you wouldn't put new wine into an old wineskin. Because if you did, it would burst. He says, if you do this, it'll stretch and it'll burst. So this is what Jesus is saying. He is the new piece of cloth. And he is the new wine. He hasn't come to patch up the old system. But he has come to do something new. He didn't come to throw away the law of God or to destroy it. He came to fulfill it. Like he says in Matthew 5. If you look at the books of the Bible, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you're going to see commandment after commandment after commandment that is given for how his people are to worship God, how the Israelites are to worship him. They would come to the temple every year and offer a sacrifice. Every year. Why were they doing that? So that that their sins could be paid for. But they were also doing it because they were looking forward to the one lamb that would come. Remember John chapter 1, what does John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the world's sins. Jesus had come to be that Lamb. He had come to be taken away so that he could fulfill the old covenant. And here's the point. You and I aren't going to make a sacrifice here today. I don't have a goat waiting to bring it out and sacrifice it. And the reason why is because Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Hebrews says it was once and for all that he died for our sins. We, look, we, we read the law of God because it shows us our need for Christ. And it shows us how to live a Christian life. But it points to Jesus. It points to our great need for him. So if you drive down Clover, uh, the Bethel Street, sometimes you see a banner up there. Or right in front of City Hall, I think it is. I've seen it advertised uh, like a St. Patrick's Day thing. Uh, bluegrass concert and car shows and all sorts of things. And it's usually on the weekend. 
And what happens on Monday after the thing's over? They take down the banner, hopefully. They take down the banner. The reason why is because you don't advertise something that's already happened. You don't point to something that's already come. In the same way, when Jesus came, he didn't, he didn't destroy the law, but he fulfilled it. He was what the law, he is what the Old Testament is pointing to. As you see the full picture of God's word, as you read the Old Testament, ask yourself this question. How does it point to Jesus? How does it show us that Christ was to come? The Old Testament is the history of God's people looking for a Savior. Rest in the fact that you have a once and for all sacrifice in Christ. You do not have to sacrifice for your sins. You only have to trust in the one that was sacrificed for your sins. You do not have to work to get to God. He did all of the work for us. All we have to do is obey Him in grateful love and adoration. So as we leave this morning, we must ask ourselves, will we worship the Lord? Will we look to the one who was sacrificed? Will we obey His call? And will we demonstrate true righteousness? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us more and more every day about how your son has come to save us from our sins. And we pray that as we go out this morning, that you would teach us and that you would mold us more into who you would have us to be. We say these things in Christ's name.